This is Wayne Jurnell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, do you remember a while ago when we were talking about uh, facilitating discussions and having students take upon roles? I know we've talked about it before. I'm trying to recall the conversation, but I know we, we got into it, right? I had a, an assignment I used online where students had like four roles and it was kind of a way to get them to suspend their judgment around the questions. So after that podcast, I decided I was going to do it with the conversation with my students. And I had five roles, the supporter, the questioner, the contrarian, the historian, and the facilitator. And students were not allowed to find out what each other's roles were. <laughs> it got very silly. Uh, yeah, I could kind of guess it's a little different, like in person than I did it online. That that feels a little different. I feel like it would. There was cool in the beginning. So this way, like we're talking about what makes a good, you know, because I have a little like write up about, you know, if you're a supporter, you're providing examples to support whoever spoke before you. And so that's kind of your role in this conversation, because I want to show that like that's the type of stuff that we wanted. Those are the type of skills we want in like yeah, a good conversation. But I feel like just because my students all had their little slips of paper, they were totally into reading that and like just playing that part rather than engaging in a full discussion. It was my fault. Yeah. And sometimes we can over teach, right? Like we can be like we can have an idea about the way a discussion should unfold and the skills you want to develop. And then we forget that, that it's taking us too far down routines or characters or roles and now not really developing real skills. So I did pause once it got kind of batty. The contrarian was being really annoying in every group. And we then kind of talked about the types of like the types of things that we would do in an academic conversation. We would take in their point. If we want to support it, we would or we would provide something else but related to it. But it led to an interesting conversation about discussions. And so maybe the fact that it did not go as perfectly as I wanted was ended up being a good thing because then we actually talked about what discussions and how to, I don't know, be a part of a, a discussion in class. Well, you're a good teacher, Michael. So you probably figured out a way to, to kind of bring it back around. But I have moments in that I was excited because that was totally, I stepped a decent lesson out of defeat. But, you know, discussion is so important, especially in social studies, right? Because it's the dialogues we have about our world. And I've been thinking a lot about the different types of discussion we have, right? Like deliberation is kind of a, a word that's used a lot in social studies, the idea that we need to deliberate on on these important and controversial and current event, you know, issues that are often coming up. You know, but, but some of them are tough, too, because uh, I know some issues that deal with issues of justice. I know deliberation is, a, is not always, doesn't always feel like the right thing, right? Like, do you mind explaining what deliberation is then? Yeah, I think I think deliberation is, is just the process of students or citizens engaging in thoughtful conversation together, right? That, where that are, is informed by evidence. The problem I think you have when it takes up issues of justice is that 
if a student or group is marginalized outside the classroom, mm-hmm. I, I'm wary of debating that in the classroom. It feels like the wrong move. You don't want to debate someone's humanity, I guess, is what you're... Yeah, exactly. And I don't think it moves us in any direction, you know. And there's things like climate change, right? Like, we're not going to debate climate change science. What we need to talk about is, like, what should we do, right? In my classroom, that's where we're going we're gonna to be at. And so I think... But it's challenging for a teacher. And I think a lot of teachers, you know, I've heard them say this, can avoid talking about the tough stuff because they're not sure how to do it. Yeah. Or they're trying to be like so even handed that they're giving, you know, credence to crackpots. And I and we, we have had a few episodes on this. Wayne, Wayne Jernell talked about teacher political disclosure. Do you do you talk about your unbeliefs? Does that come out? And I think it was episode eight. And we've certainly brought up deliberation because it's important to, I think, a lot of the C3 framework and models. But I still feel like I have more to learn. I feel like we always have more to learn. If only we had a podcast in which we could bring people on who've done some scholarship on this. If only that was the... Wait a second, Dan. And without further ado, Michael's leading me right into it. We would like to welcome in Jada Kohlmeyer to the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm a little nervous, but uh, I've always dreamed of doing a podcast in the past. So <laughs> You're the expert here, so we're just kind of... We're here to, you know work around you, work with you, learn from you. There we go. There we go. I wish we had an editor. I liked option C. <laughs> so Dr. Colmar, can you tell us a little bit about your background in education? Sure. I went to Kansas State University for my bachelor's degree and I graduated with a history degree and decided to go into teaching. And so I did a master of arts in teaching at Washington University in St. Louis. And that's really where I did kind of my formative labs and internships and and things like that. And I was really kind of introduced to the idea of using controversy in the classroom to spur interest and get students engaged. And then I taught for four years in rural Kansas about uh, all of the disciplines and about every age group because it was really small school system. And then I decided to pursue my PhD. So I moved to the suburbs of Kansas City and I continued to teach in the suburbs of Kansas City for six years in a really fast growing district that was very diverse in numerous ways. And I did my PhD work then at the University of Kansas. And I worked with Joe O'Brien. He was very instrumental in getting me interested in using discussion and, you know, using controversy in the classroom to kind of spur engagement and really to help students see the purpose behind social studies. I think that's what I was always struggling with as a teacher was that my students didn't love what I loved and they didn't always see the point of learning about these historical events or these abstract ideas that we were talking about in government or economics. But if I could use political issues or social issues, I felt like they they sat up in their desks and they paid more attention and they seemed to the authenticity and relevance of it. And that's really probably what's driven me then. I finished about 16 years ago, my PhD, and I I found this position. I've been now at Auburn University for the last 16 years doing teacher education and research, you know, just helping teachers at all levels. We do a lot of professional development work with in-service teachers and, of course, teaching graduate students. But we also have a heavy undergraduate teaching load, which I really appreciate as well. 
I love that you have a background in Kansas because I was at Wichita State for two years and really oh. got to know the state a bit and traveled to Manhattan, the uh, the Little Apple. Is that, isn't that, is that the That's term? right. Yeah, I got That's right. That's what they call themselves. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, it's very, it is. They got a little Aggieville. I went through it and, and I got to travel around Kansas and it, it's, it's a really interesting state and there's a lot of cool things happening there. And I know I've seen you, you know, at, at the big social studies conferences presenting on so many interesting things, you know, all these years. And so Michael and I, you know, are we have a lot we still need to learn about deliberating and talking and figuring out how to do this in the classroom. And fortunately, you just published an article on this in Theory and Research and Social Education. So first, congratulations on that. And and I would stop you from keep calling me the expert. I, I feel like we're always learning, you know, along with our teachers and along with our students, because it isn't an easy, it isn't easy. And I think it continues to change, you know, as society changes and things like that. So I'm far from an expert, but it is something that interests me. And I'm, I'm really interested in just learning alongside teachers about what is possible and what works well and how we can maybe prepare our future citizens to listen uh, to each other and carefully with each other. So. so I feel like that's probably the, the sign of a great expert, that you're willing to be humble, but also realize that you're learning too. So I'd still say you're an expert <laughs> because I'm going to. Right. There's a Socrates quote on that, right? Like the more you know, I know, the more... I don't. So I'm, I'm not good at quotes. I'm not, you guys can look it up, but you know what I'm talking about. So, so the article is titled "Examining the Relationship Between Teachers' Discussion Facilitation and Their Students' Reasoning." So, not only are we going to talk about what the teacher does to facilitate the discussion, but what the heck happens on the other end. So, tell us about the the process of going about this study. Yeah, that's a we we do a really good job of coming up with really flashy titles, don't we? Well. This is a, a long project, and I've actually, this is the fourth piece I've actually published out of this same project, but we had some teachers that had graduated from our teacher education program, which here at Auburn, we have always emphasized what we call, where, what the field is called disciplined inquiry, and it comes out of the Harvard project that is kind of old. It was part of the new social studies, but Really, it was one of the only curriculum efforts that really focused on social issues as the center of social studies, as opposed to disciplinary literacy, like questions that a historian would ask or something. So we focus our program on kind of getting our teacher candidates and our teachers to frame their units of instruction around a controversial ethical question that would cut across time and space. So we had a few graduates from our program here in the local area that were interested in doing more discussion in their classrooms. And we had been working with them, like taking our lab students and things. So we had kind of identified them as people who were interested in doing discussion and were probably going to be fairly good at it if we could, you know, kind of keep working with them and and supporting them in that And uh, so we got a small bit of funding to work with them for a year. They were teaching government at the time. And so we paid them and a political scientist to help us develop um, all of our professional, I should back up, all of our professional development work is always done as a team between the teacher educators and the teachers. And when we can, a content expert. 
expert. So some of the articles that I've published out of this is really more about the professional development. And um, so I won't go into details about that, but we can link to those things later if teachers are interested in that kind of collaborative professional development. But we basically worked with two these two teachers the first year, and then we got a little extra money and we were able to have them each recruit a teacher from their school because the two original teachers were in two different high schools. And those teachers were reluctant discussion leaders. So it was an interesting project because I got to see four teachers all lead the same discussions over a two-year process. And I could kind of do some comparisons between the um, experiences that the teachers had. So this piece, I just thought it was interesting to really do a close look at the numerous decisions that a teacher is making while they're leading of, or while they're facilitating the discussion and uh, the, how those choices then influenced the learning that the students demonstrated or were able to explore. Because I think that was maybe something that we don't, we haven't really done a lot of in the field is actually examining the student learning that can come out of discussions and how subtle moves that a, a teacher might make might influence that learning. That's fascinating. I like the concept of studying the subtle moves. What were some of the subtle moves that teachers were making, particularly the ones that so, were making an impact or not an impact? So this discussion happened to focus on the um, Texas versus Johnson Supreme Court decision that allowed flag burning as an expression of free speech. And so I might allude to examples of that, you know, as I'm talking, but the mentor teachers, the teachers who are part of the project, we noticed that they did several things that led to deeper analysis of the issues with the students. And the way that I looked at this was I went back to a bunch of work that came out of that Harvard project. And Oliver and Shaver, this is an old book, it's from 1966. And it's called Teaching Public Issues in the High School, and it's out of print, but it's just a gem of a book because it helps teachers see that whenever citizens are debating a controversial issue, citizens will come to different positions on those issues because they're usually valuing a different democratic value than their opponent. So all citizens of a democracy support free speech, but they also support public safety or the general welfare or something like that. Oliver and Shaver argued that human dignity is really at the center of democratic values, but that there's a lot of democratic values then that kind of come into conflict. So they suggested in their book, and then Newman and Oliver write one in the 1970s called Clarifying Public Issues, and they argued that a good public issue has value questions. Definitional questions would be like concepts. So maybe like expression or patriotism or freedom. Those might be some that would come out in this particular issue. And there would be factual questions. And then there would be policy questions. And what we noticed was, so that was actually the lens that I used to look at the student learning, was what values were being expressed, what concepts were being really analyzed deeply, you know, because all of the discussions kind of focused on facts. The mentor teachers, the, the teachers who scored the highest on the rubric that we used, 
they allowed their students to talk to each other for much longer periods of time. So they would, they were much more intentional about their questions. They didn't just have a list of questions and then they just picked them off, but instead they would ask a question that was more geared toward one of those values or one of those concepts. And they would let the students build on each other and speak to each other before they would intervene with a follow-up question that was then usually intended to dig a little bit deeper into the students to help them clarify how they might be defining patriotism in a different way. And when they're defining patriotism in a different way, they're oftentimes attaching patriotism to a different value. They might be valuing purity versus diversity or unity versus diversity or something like that. So in the paper, you know, of course, I have long quotes where you can see the the specific questions that the teacher asked and then how that generated some student thinking. The other, so I guess the, the big takeaway was that the, the students learned a lot more when they were allowed to learn from each other than when the teacher was just peppering them with a lot of questions. And when the teacher stayed on one of those really big ideas, you know, a big value or a concept for a longer period of time, it seemed to deepen the students' understanding of the, the issue. They listened to each other's points of view. So that, those were probably the, big, the biggest takeaways. For students to talk to each other does seem really beneficial. And I think teachers often have so much control over the classroom. It can often be difficult to give up that control for long periods of time, especially when the discussion maybe goes down the wrong path. And what I mean by that is inaccurate information, like kind of poor interpretation of, you know, documents or ideas that, you know, they just don't have enough background knowledge. So they're kind of operating off of off of some of their the knowledge. And I know um, I've seen some studies recently about how often students' background knowledge determines what they're going to discuss as opposed to like all the things they're looking at in the class. So how did you kind of understand that? How did that fit within your rubric and evaluation of of what quality deliberation looks like for the teacher and students? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked that. So we had a pretty specific definition of what we were calling these discussions. And I talk about a little bit more in one of the other papers. I'm not not sure which, but we used Walter Parker's distinction. And I'm bad about, I can't remember what year he wrote this. It seems like, I, I can't remember. I, I could put it up for people. But he wrote an article where he talked about a seminar being a, a discussion where the students really um, interpret a text together. They all read the same text and they work collectively to um, refine their thinking about the meaning of that text. And then a deliberation would be a public debate over a solution to a problem. So a seminar might lead you to a deliberation. The discussion that we did included both of those phases. So one of the things that we did to help And one of the things that I would really encourage teachers to think about is that it is, I think it's unfair to just spring a topic on students. We're just going to discuss this because they all come with a huge, vast, different backgrounds. They may not hold the same ideas in common. So I think it's much more useful to provide a rich text 
text or a, a reading or something that everyone reads together. And then we maybe work through that. Now you could have, you know, two documents, you know, that are in conflict with each other and, and read those and discuss those. But so what we did was we had them read the Texas versus Johnson majority and minority opinions. And they first did a seminar just trying to unpack the majority and the dissenting opinion. And then they turned to the deliberation of should we amend the constitution, you know, to change this or should we keep it? So I don't know if that helps with your question exactly, but yeah, that, that does help. It's, and I've, I've used some of Walter Parker's ideas in my class before. I think one of the questions I really liked, especially in elementary, because you so often go through this ritual of doing the pledge often, I and mean, it's done at yeah. other grades too. But the question, one thing I really liked is he, he asked the question, to what are we pledging allegiance, right? I mean, if you actually look at the Pledge of Allegiance, there's a lot there, right? It could be to the Republic, which is a system of government. It could be to literally the flag. Um, and then we have a discussion about why, what does the flag represent? Or do you just really love that flag? And, you know, there's there, or is it the nation, you know? Um, and some, and obviously in recent discussions, some people have identified, taken it a step and said it specifically is for armed people in the armed forces. Um, and I've heard students say exclusively for people in the armed forces. So it's really interesting, this discussion over something that's so common. But um, it was helpful because they did have like kind of a common understanding of, of those words. But then they brought in different views. And so I think it's always interesting. But I really like working with text too, reading something together, looking at something together and then talking about it. Because it also helps me focus the discussion. But maybe that's just because I want to be in control and... And I have knowledge of that topic I choose. I don't know. Well, it's interesting you say that because I, that was actually the very first. We did three discussions over the course, and they started with the Pledge of Allegiance. And then the second one was Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail. And then the third one was this Texas versus Johnson. They all happened to kind of fit with topics that the teachers were doing in their government class. But the pledge was they did that within the first week because they wanted to kind of use it as a get to know you, learn about your classmates, but as really kind of a foundational text for their government class that they were going to keep coming back to. And it was amazing to me to, I think I've written about it in one of the other papers was how often the students referred back to the discussion on the pledge or Birmingham jail in this discussion about the flag, you know, and what the flag meant. And we would love to get that on your on the uh, on the show notes, so this way teachers can can read that. That's really funny. You mentioned the letter from Birmingham Jail, which is one of my favorite texts too, because you know the letter which Martin Luther King is responding to is the call to unity from the Alabama clergy, which is very much kind of a call to deliberation in a sense. You know what I mean? And so it's interesting. I'm actually presenting. Uh, with the communications professor here at UNT at NCSS preview, if you want to come to our session, where we talk about the different modes of, you know, deliberation and democracy that are present in those two texts. Um, and we kind of argue that King is actually making a different argument than deliberation. He's making an argument for justice. And so there's times, and maybe that's why I sometimes feel uncomfortable with using deliberation models on issues of justice, because I sometimes feel like that's what, that's what the goal should be. The goal isn't just always to talk about it. Sometimes it's to do the right thing in the world. And But I don't know. I don't, I, I've wrestled with I've been wrestling with that the last few years. It's really hard to figure out what to do. 
Well, I agree. I think Diana Hess has written about this a lot, that the questions that teachers choose to deliberate in their classrooms is itself a controversial question and that teachers will disagree and probably context can matter too, that there are probably some topics that people consider closed and some that people consider open. So teachers will probably make different decisions about what topics they're comfortable. I think those are some of my questions moving forward is, are there differences, I guess, between the classroom climates today and when they were, you know, when we did this study, which was six years ago now or something, you know, it's been quite a while and some of the political climate has changed. But I think one of the things that I really love about the old, this old um, framework from uh, Newman and Oliver and uh, Shaver is that they really try to get people to clarify their positions by digging down underneath and finding these values that we at different times, you know, that we, we value unity sometimes, but then we, we also value resistance sometimes. And when do we value those things? When do we value supporting the government? And when do we value breaking a law? And you know, which groups should be allowed to protest and which groups should not? And what limits would we place on extreme positions and things like that? And I, my goal, my, what I suggest to teachers is that if the, if the polis is discussing it, then I think we have a duty to let kids talk about it. Sometimes I would just say that in my research in talking to the students that are in the class and to the teachers is that students are pretty resilient and they actually appreciate the opportunity to discuss some of these touchy issues because they kind of feel like no one will talk about them and they have a lot of questions and they have a lot of concerns that I think they feel like they can't ask. And if they can't ask them in social studies, my fear is that then they go to the internet and they find fringe groups, and that actually makes it worse. So while I appreciate, you know, there's always this tension between do I raise an issue that might make students in my class feel feel vulnerable, I think there's a danger in not doing that as well, because they're, they're going to hear people talking about them, and I would like them to learn to do it well by really looking at some of these big ideas that are actually fairly complicated. I think that's a great point. I actually, when I, I taught um, government during the 2008 election, and I found my classroom to be such a better place to talk politics than the rest of the world. Like, they're not, mm -hmm. students are often not as hard, even if they kind of have some kind of identity, they're not as hard in their beliefs often as adults are. And I did find my students very willing to discuss difficult things. And so, yeah, I agree. Maybe it's my, my adult anxieties play more of a role in, for me and other teachers and like what we worry about doing in our class. I don't know. What do you find, Michael? You're, you're in the classroom today. So things have gotten very charged as of late. And everyone has a, a very, uh, things have gotten very charged. The political scene that you see is very similar to a classroom in a lot of ways. And so I know a lot of teachers are really trying to figure out how to navigate those waters to make sure that they are framing things in such a way that it's not, um, that students do feel heard, but they're not giving 
credence to like your, you know, your info wars or, you know, your, your terrible news sites. Uh, and so it, it's definitely something that I, that teachers in my school and the teachers I talk to are definitely cognizant of and, and actively trying to figure out ways in which to bring in modern issues and do it in such a way that it's a productive conversation. Yeah. There's part of me that almost wonders if there's power in, I don't know, using more historical topics that are parallel or analogous to situations today and like letting students kind of discuss that as a, an event that happened in the past and letting them, we, we actually That's interesting. see that sometimes where like in a history class, they might be, oh, well, like they were looking at some of the immigration restrictions and some of the political cartoons and things from the early 20th century, late 19th century. And it was the students that immediately said, well, that sounds a lot, you know, like the immigration stuff today. And it was actually then the students that took that and discussed it fairly well. You know, it wasn't even the teacher that kind of had to raise that. I think that's one of my questions moving forward is, I think there's strengths and weaknesses of doing that, you know, using historical times, because when, when then are, are you being ahistorical if you're making these parallels? And how do you mm-hmm. do that carefully and examining the similarities and the differences between that, which is, you know, a, a topic for another podcast. But right. it is kind of where I'm wondering about how, well, to, how to navigate these where it's so polarized and people just have a knee jerk reaction and they, they'll shut down thinking before you can even really get into the deeper issue there. Yeah. Maybe that like a sense. case study, like, like use the past as a case study of, you know, when maybe is the president overstepping his executive authority, you don't have uh-huh. to necessarily do it on a modern president that would be really polarizing, but maybe you do, you know, a Harry Truman or an executive order, you know, that was controversial at the time and have students, you know, talk about whether that was constitutional or not. And then, you know, see if they make any parallels to today. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Plus it, yeah, then you're using, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I like it. So my class starts next week uh, with my students. Very exciting. And I want to make sure that I am doing conversations and discussions well. What tips would you give me? What what we've learned confirms what Diana Hess has already found, and that is that teachers who are good facilitators of discussion do it a lot. Um, they get good at it through practice, and their students get good at it through practice. The the mentor teachers in this research article that kind of led to this podcast, they had led that same discussion four times, whereas the mentee teachers who scored lower had only done it once or twice. So practice helps and it helps your students as well. I I thought it was interesting what you guys were talking about at the beginning in terms of helping them think about some of the behaviors of what people do that makes good conversation versus not good conversation. And um, I can't remember his first name. I think it was, it's D. Harris. He was a student of Fred Newman, I think. And he came up with a rubric 
And um, it's maybe a little overly thorough, but he just gives a list of behaviors that are positive and negative for a discussion. It's very behavioral based. The two mentor teachers, every single time they started a discussion, they started with, what do you want? What kind of behaviors will make you comfortable in this discussion? What do we want to avoid? What kind of behaviors would make you less likely to participate? And they kept those up on the board and they would keep referring to them. And Michael, you were kind of joking at the beginning about how sometimes it can be kind of goofy. And I did find that when I was a classroom teacher myself and when these teachers start, sometimes they'll be a little like, I am asking a clarifying question or whatever. But like everyone just kind of laughs and then you just kind of move on. And then if you kind of let that happen a little bit, they'll finally just start doing it more naturally. But it is, you know, they'll like, please note on your rubric that I'm asking so-and-so a follow-up question (laughs) or whatever. So, you know, and that's fine because, but I do think she always said that teachers who do it well teach with and for discussions. They use it a lot. They teach their content through discussions, but they also teach them for discussion. They teach them, they coach them up on how to do it well. But yeah, you, you have to, you know, I would start with small things like the pledge or the preamble to the constitution or, you know, some things like that. And you just kind of gradually then get into maybe more touchy subjects as the semester goes on and they learn to trust you and each other. That's great. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I appreciate the interest in the article. <laughs> <laughs> so Dr. Kohlmeyer, where can our listeners find you and your work online? Oh, well, um, I have published a few things in uh, theory and research and social education. There's also a piece in the social studies. And then there's also one in social studies research and practice. A couple of those are on the students' ethical reasoning about just laws and free speech. And um, one was on the uh, professional development project that that we used. But um, yeah. It's a good reminder. There's a lot of good social studies journals with some really helpful articles. I often use them to kind of, you know, figure out what to do in my class. I search when I'm searching for a topic. So thank you for contributing to that literature so much. Oh, my pleasure. I appreciate the time to talk about why I think this is so important. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. So at the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun of creating education or you just want to chat, tweet us at Visions of Ed. We're also on Facebook, and I think in that place that I sign us up for, but I have no idea what it is. And of course, if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and anywhere you want us to be. And there is no need to deliberate. Just put that five-star review right up there on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find these these episodes. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.